David said, my soul waits in silence for him. Listen, everybody that has been on this platform today has some pain in their life. Maybe most of it has been in the past and not so much in the present. For some, it's very much in the present. Everybody in this house today has had some measure of pain. The question is, what do you do with that? Are you, like David, learning to wait in silence before the Lord? Listen, sometimes when I read the Psalms and I'm a little disconnected from its historical context... I tend to relegate it to pretty, poetic language, pious platitudes. But when you recall that David pens words right out of his life experience and you begin to compare, what did he just go through when he said these words? Then it suddenly begins to come alive into us. This coming week, you're going to have readings from the Old Testament We're in week 19 of our journey. And if you haven't been on that journey with us, we encourage you to do it. Just start at week 19. You can find out about it on our website. But this week, you're going to be reading about David. And you'll discover that he had a beautiful daughter by the name of Tamar. Now, Tamar was single. And at some point, she was going to be married off into a relationship that hopefully would be love-filled. But David also had a son by the name of Amnon who lusted for Tamar. And the rest of that story is that he pursued her, he overwhelmed her, he raped her, and then he cast her away in shame and in disgrace. Obviously, this would break the heart of any father. It broke the heart of David. But for reasons that uh, we don't know and we don't understand, David didn't really do anything about this. He didn't really do anything to discipline his son Amnon. And David also had another son, By the name of Absalom. And Absalom was absolutely furious that Amnon had violated Tamar. And though he did nothing immediately, he schemed and he plotted. And for around a couple of years, you would have thought it didn't matter too much to him. But then after that point, he arranged for Amnon to be killed. Now, what do you do? I've got a daughter who's been violated by a son who has now been murdered by another son. And that one has fled from my presence. And Absalom went to a faraway place to escape the insanity of the family situation. After some period of time, one of David's generals kind of orchestrated things for Absalom to be able to come back and and to try to reconcile with David. It was kind of a a faux reconciliation. Even though they came into greater geographic proximity, they never saw each other. They never dealt, dealt with each other. Meanwhile, Absalom began to scheme to take the kingdom of Israel away from his father, David. He enacted a coup. And the next thing you know, David is having to flee with some of his key uh, players from Jerusalem and flee for his life because the kingdom is being jerked right out from under him. Frank, can you imagine the heartache, the grief, the pain to see your family disintegrating before your eyes with such violence and such destruction? 
a number of political maneuverings and military maneuverings took place. And finally, David was able to prevail and cast out Absalom and his coup as they began to flee. You'll be reading this week, Absalom, who apparently had this beautiful, long, flowing hair, was uh, fleeing a hot pursuit. And as he went through a, a grove of thick trees and branches, got his hair caught in some branches, yanked him off the horse. Some soldiers came up from behind him and killed him. And out of all of that, David says, my soul waits in silence. Upon God, my rock, my fortress. And of course, those words have a lot of meaning to David because he's a military guy. Military people need rocks. They need fortresses. They need protection in times of peril. And he confesses in the language that's familiar to him. That's who God is to me. And he's coming to grips with that. In silence. What do you do when you are being overwhelmed by life? What do you do when life is getting upside down? This is not the way it's supposed to go. What do you do? Listen, I've been with friends who lost their battle to cancer. And I sat with them when they breathed their last. I've been with other friends whose son committed suicide. I've been with other friends who were trying to find their way back from a marital unfaithfulness. I've been with other friends who have had this heartache, that heartache, another heartache. You know what we're talking about. You've had pain. What do you do? Do you busy yourself? Try to suppress the pain and and, uh, get so occupied with other things that you try to dull the sense of it? Do you medicate? You uh, seek food as a refuge or drink or drug or sex. What do you do? David waited in silence, and maybe that strikes you as strange. And maybe it's because you have adopted a life narrative where all of this remains a blur. It remains confusing. And this is confusing to everyone at some point. But if you are not connected to Christ, and if you are of a more secularist kind of background, then friend, you have basically adopted a worldview or a meta-narrative that says, you know, we kind of just evolved. We kind of just randomly had all these collision things happen, and one thing led to another, and here we are. And out of that, it's been kind of a progressive thing. We get better, we get more sophisticated, we get greater advancement with uh, scientific uh, discovery and technological advances. And, uh, you know, what we're tasked with is we just got to find a way to maximize life. Grab all the gusto you can grab. Make it count because when this life is over, it's over. Death is a finality. There is no ongoing uh, kind of existence for the personage that is within this body. That is the basic 
secularist worldview. Now, if you also have just a little bit of spiritual inkling or or intuition, you kind of get stirred every now and then, you go, maybe I'm not atheistic, maybe I'm agnostic, and I just got a lot of questions I can't answer. But if there is a God, where is he? And so you try to place him somewhere in that narrative, and it just doesn't make sense. Because if there is a God, then surely he must be impotent. Because he doesn't seem to be doing anything about all of these horrific, problematic, painful things. Or if he is powerful and could do something about it, then he must not care. He must not be a compassionate God. Because he's not doing anything about it. And so with that worldview, friend, it is, it is crazily confusing. Now, if you are a follower of Christ and you have been connected to God by your faith in Jesus, then you live under a different narrative. Your worldview looks something like this. It didn't begin out of randomness, chance collisions of all kinds of stuff that produced whatever, but it began with a design. It began with a creator. It began with creation. That means it began with purpose. There's a reason for our being in this world. There's a reason that things are the way that they are. And because they are so broken and busted, what's that all about? There's a fall. And even though when God created it all, he said, that's good, that's good, that's good, that's good. At some point, humanity enacted will, chose against God, rebelled, and out of that coup, there was a fall. And Our world has been broken and has been busted from that day until now. We live not in a utopia, not in something that's evolving ever better, but we live in a broken, busted thing. And God cares. And God has for centuries been enacting a redemptive plan. He has been pursuing us. He has been gracing us. He has been touching us. He has been wooing us. He has been revealing and disclosing himself to us with the hope that we would come to him, repent of the broken, busted, sinful way, and turn to him for life. Turn to him for forgiveness. Turn to him for an altogether new, different kind of life. And ultimately, all of this will culminate In a restoration. God will settle the score. He will balance the books. He will take care of justice. He'll make all wrongs right. And so in this worldview, you see that God is all over it from before the beginnings all the way through the end and to eternity. But it's still confusing. And our pain And our problems can still cause us to get cross-eyed and we're like, what is this? And so we want to turn to David today because he's a man of God. And if you're a follower of Christ and you have been caused to be alive unto God, then you're a man of God. You're a woman of God. You're people of God. And people of God get this to some level or another. And I think it's God's purpose in this hour that you get it 
more today. You get it with greater clarity today. And I'm fully confident that the things that God wants to do with us over the next few minutes are going to serve your life for years and maybe decades to come. I have a very high sense about what God wants to do in these next few moments with His people. The reading that we want to do today is right out of uh, what the guys sang just a moment ago, Psalm 62. I encourage you to open a Bible and look at that with me. We've just uh, recounted the historical backdrop to that. Listen freshly to what David said. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man? To batter him like a leaning wall or a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation. And my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust In extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. Now, Psalms, they're poetic. Um... And their ancient poetry at that, I don't know about you, I'm not a great fan of poetry. And I don't mean that uh, derisively to those of you that really enjoy it. I've just never had a high appreciation for it. And so when I read Psalms, uh, I struggle sometimes because I'm a narrative guy. I'm a story guy. I'm not so much a poetic guy. Uh, but what we're going to do is we're going to unpack what he's just done in that poetry for a couple of minutes. And then we're going to see what difference does that make for you today, for this week, for where you are in life right now. As you begin, keep your Bible open and keep uh, referencing the verses that we just read. Uh, What you will see in the first place is that he will declare, my hope is only in God. And so I will wait for him in silence. He not only says that in verse 1, he repeats it in verse 5. And in verse 5, he does so with more intensity. It's almost like as he is unfolding this poetic utterance and expression, he is uh, in a movement himself. And so as he he begins, it's like, I'm going to be in silent, present before the Lord and hope. And then by the time you get to verse 5, I must be in his presence, 
in silence and hope. And in God only, I'm not going to trust in my political maneuverings, in my wisdom, my wit, my charisma, my capability to get stuff done, to figure stuff out. This stuff, I've just got to wait on God. You say, well, what do you do while you're waiting? This is not, friends, a passive reclining back kind of wait. This isn't on the edge of your seat, your ear cupped, your heart sharp and in tune. God, I'm waiting on you. Might he say something? Might he impress some kind of illumination on the circumstance? Might he bring some kind of grace to my heart, some kind of touch, some kind of comfort, some kind of strengthening and encouraging? Might he show a path, point out a step, bring some guidance? I am going to wait. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. And I'm going to shut up and be silent to see how God shows up. That's the first thing we glean out of David's example. The second is this. As I was saying, there seems to be a progressive nature into what he is expressing in the psalm. So when he says in verse 2, I'm going to hope in him, I'm going to wait in him, and as I do so, I will not be shaken too much. The last word in the phrase in the Hebrew says, greatly. I will not be shaken greatly. That's to say, I know I'm going to be shook. I know this is going to shake me up, but it's not going to happen to the undoing of my life. By the time you get to verse 6, he removes the qualifier and just says, I'm hoping in him. I'm waiting in him. I will not be shaken. Now, friend, that's so revelatory of your life and my life. We're never 100% totally full of faith every moment of every day. We have stronger moments and weaker moments. And he gives expression to where he is in that process. And so as we are learning from David, we're learning that this looking to God and waiting to God and calling to God, crying to God also serves progressively, developmentally, to deepen things in me about God. And then see, in the third place, all of this begins to open his heart. Now, when you have taken the blows that David has taken, just in the scenarios I described with his family, and we didn't even talk about all the scenarios beyond that, but just the scenarios with his family, it can cause your heart to close up like a turtle retreating in a shell. Just get into a hard place. Just get into a protective place. Just get into a place where nothing else can hit me and hurt me. But as he begins to wait on the Lord, as he is silent before God, as God begins to interact and interface with his life, He finds his heart opening and opening and to the point where he calls out to us. Oh, pour out your heart to him. Trust him. Risk it with him. And then see in the last place, as you're looking at those last couple of verses, he gains some wisdom. Now, again, he says it in poetic fashion. Uh, which I don't have the greatest appreciation for. He goes, hey, once I heard this from God, twice I heard another. 
which is to say, here's what I have learned. See, I just go, here's what I have learned. But no, not David. So he says, here's what I have learned. He has all the power. He goes, Scott, newsflash. Hey, I'm with Jill. I forget these things. And I get into situations where I am so powerless, I can't control a thing. And I forget who has all power. I mean beyond an intellectual way. I mean in a heart way that is convicted and convinced about that. He says, here's what I've learned. God has all power and newer versions will say steadfast love. Older versions will say mercy. The Hebrew is that word we keep talking about in here. Chesed. Covenant. Love. Here's what I've learned about God. He's got all the power and he has made a covenant with us that will not stop, that will not quit. He is committed to you. He has made promises to you that he will fulfill. And you're like, okay, I'm good now. How about fulfilling some of those things right now? And friend, here's something that we've got to nail in our hearts in terms of what does hope look like? Hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is not positive attitude. Hope is not hanging on until my circumstance gets better. Hope is confidence in God. That's what it is. I'm confident He's got the power. I'm confident that I'm in a covenant relationship with Him where He is committed to me. And I'm confident that out of His goodness, His wise purposes... Everything that's befalling matters, means something, and behooves me to wait on Him to see what it all's about. That's what hope is. Let me say it to you this way. As we're looking at the life of David, you'll see it's also true. Hope is standing in the place God has called us. God called you into that marriage? Stand there. God called you into the parenting challenges you've got right now? Stand there. God called you into the employ of a godless boss who's given you all kinds of heartache? Stand there. God's called you into a health scenario that you don't know what the outcome of that's going to be? Stand there. Stay in that place with Him And get silent before him to see how he shows up. Don't go running. Don't go hiding. Don't go playing games, trying to manipulate circumstances. Exercise what non-power you have. 
stay in place until he begins to show you something. And then you go at his pace. It's all about place and pace. Place and pace. Take that home. Place and pace. There's a lot of times we want God to move it a lot more quickly than what it's playing out. And for some reason, his clock just doesn't work like ours. Now, I want to take the next few minutes to illustrate what I'm talking about with the story of a young man that lives not far from here, just across the pass over in Wenatchee. Josh is uh, married to a lovely gal, and they have wanted children. They prayed for children. They're a godly couple that trust God. And in six years, they had six pregnancies. Two were terrible miscarriages. The first birth they were able to have. Upon birth, were given these words that they had never given two seconds of thought to. Spina bifida. And of course, you're aware that that is the abnormal development and lack of development of the spine. Brings with it all kinds of special needs and challenges for whatever span of life the child will have. It is a very difficult, very painful kind of scenario. And you can imagine that this couple responded with all the why questions. God, we've been faithful. God, we have served you. God, we have been pouring out our life for you. They're very active in their church. They are difference makers. They, they are people that have been giving their life away for years. For the cause of Christ and for the sake of people. God, 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 what is this? And so, you know, they had a little expression of their grief and of their sorrow. They're turning to God with all of that. And um, Josh was kind enough to share some of his journey in his journal that I was uh, privileged to read not too long ago. And I want to share with you just a brief excerpt from his journal. As he continues in this process and as he's waiting before the Lord, and he begins to get silent. He begins to still his heart so that God can show up in some kind of way. He says, it was in my prayer that God redefined the word tragedy for me. I'd been calling this event the birth of his daughter with spina bifida. I'd been calling it a tragedy. Then one day the Lord spoke to me very clearly. It was as if he said, Josh, you're looking at it all wrong. Tragedy is not your daughter growing up with two legs that don't work. Tragedy is your daughter growing up with two legs that do work, but walking away from me in her heart. Tragedy is her growing up with two legs that work and her finding identity in how fast those legs can carry her around a track, rather than finding her identity in my son who carried her sins on his shoulders. Oh, man, that's a word from God. That doesn't miraculously heal the daughter. 
That doesn't change all of their circumstances and make it easy now, which is what we want all the time. That doesn't just bring this great pain relief because God's not that great pill in the sky. That just has God showing up with power to sustain and promise to make it count that there are high holy purposes behind what has been developing in their family and with their little girl. This is not tragedy. This is divine activity. Josh goes on in his journal to say, second, not only did God redefine the word tragedy for me, but he solidified belief in my heart about the glorious and biblical truth that God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied with him. This truth compelled me and freed me to at any cost pursue my joy in Christ so hard that no pain could shake it. No earthly pleasure could compete with it. You know what he's talking about? I'm going to find my joy in God. I'm not going to find my joy in my accomplishments. I'm not going to find my joy in my net worth. I'm not going to find my joy vicariously through what my children can do someday. I'm not going to find my joy through the accolades of men or the fame that uh, they might want to bestow on me. I'm going to find my joy, find my joy, find my joy in God. Or I'm not going to find it at all. And he said, the more that I was compelled to find my joy in Christ, the more Christ found me. Fast forward. They have a couple of births of healthy children. And they prayerfully felt like God said, have one more. And so this past December, they were... uh, in for an exam, the technician is looking at the results of their test, and she begins to cry. And they're like, what's, what's the matter? And they heard for the second time words that they never thought they'd have to hear again. Spina bifida. And their fourth child, soon to be born, is going to be born with spina bifida. You know how I pointed out in David's psalm, there was kind of a progressive thing. He moved from being shaken greatly to I will not be shaken. He moved from I'm going to wait on the Lord who is the Lord of my salvation, to also he's the Lord of my salvation and my hope. There there were these progressive things going on. And so it was with Josh and his wife. You see, as they continued to grapple with the day-in, day-out kind of stuff with their daughter, special needs daughter, Josh uh, was taken on a journey through the Scriptures very similar to the journey you have been on. And he went to Job and he poured over the story of Job multiple times. 
And he said, you know what stood out to me? I, I, I just was like, I, I'd read it before. I, it was in my head, but it hadn't like moved those inches down into my heart. And he said, Here, here's what grabbed me. It just seized me. In one day, Job loses ten children. And the Bible says Chaldeans, which were evil men, came in and killed some. And, and then uh, the Bible talks about uh, this great windstorm, a natural disaster coming and destroying you know, everything else that Job has. So there are evil men and natural disasters. But Job says this, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And Josh said, oh, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Chaldeans, natural disasters. But Job said, God did this. And blessed be his name. And Josh is really scratching his head now. Then he goes on to read in chapter 1, verse 22, where the scriptures attest and affirm, in all of this Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. Job had it right. All the tragedy, all the hardship, all the pain that had come Job's way, God had been involved in that. And then he said, I immediately had Joseph come to mind. So he goes to Genesis and he begins to read the whole Joseph narrative again. Same journey you've been on. And, of course, you know the great declaration of Joseph when his brothers are before him, and he's now the second most powerful man on the planet, arguably, certainly in Egypt. And he discloses his identity to his brothers, and they just know they're dead men now. He's going to take out all of his revenge on us. And Joseph says to him, no, 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 don't worry. Don't fear. What you did, you meant it for evil. And here's the word. But God meant it. For good. Yeah, you were involved in all the tragedy that befell my life, Joseph said. But so was God. The only thing is, what you were orchestrating around my life was for evil. What he was orchestrating around my life was for good. So Josh has been in this journey since the birth of his daughter with special needs. And now it's November, and it's December, and it's January, and his son is soon to be born with spina bifida. And out of this process, out of waiting before the Lord, out of the silence, God begins to bring these theological realities to his heart, encourage his heart, strengthen his heart, breathe grace upon his life. And he writes a letter. To his son. Before he's born. I want you to listen to what Josh says. So son. We believe. Talking about he and his wife. You are a part of God's plan for our life. And more importantly. You're a part of God's plan. For his glory. And that's good news for us. That's more joy. You are not a mistake. 
You are not a statistic. You are not a tragedy or an accident. You are not an inconvenience. You will not be defined by a birth defect. You are God's craftsmanship. You have been hand-knitted in your mother's womb to his perfect and exact specifications. And you are our son. We're already proud of you. We already have big expectations for how the Lord will use you in our lives and those of others. God is giving you a unique opportunity to display his glory. And we count it a great gift that he would choose us to be your parents. Yours will be a life that God will use like a megaphone to wake up a deaf world knowing Jesus is better than life. You haven't even arrived yet. You're already teaching us more about God's grace. Just like your older sister did. You are already a gift. And it will be one of my greatest privileges to be your father. To teach you in whatever capacity that your mind can grasp what it means to be a man, to love the Lord, to follow Jesus, and to run with all your might the race of faith. A, f- a race that he has marked out for you. Your mother and your siblings are very anxious to get you here. So hurry up. Friend, I don't know how far in that is to you. But that's what relationship with God looks like. That's what faith looks like. That's what hope, confidence in God looks like. That's what spirit-breathed perseverance looks like. And I don't know what your circumstances are. I know some of them. And I don't know what all your questions are. I know some of them. But what we do know and what we're confessing together today is that there is a good God who is active and at work around us with good purposes. And if out of his chesed, his covenant love for us, he would allow us to bear hardships that show the world how we treasure him and value him more than life. Then we bear a privilege to be able to live that kind of life before the Lord. Now for this kind of life produces a fruit in you. There, there is a temporal payoff, not just an eternal payoff, when you have hope and confidence in God in these kinds of ways. And one of those is love. When you have a confidence in God, born out of your relationship with Him, born out of your experience with Him, not out of theory, not out of dusty doctrines on some page, not out of somebody else's story, but when it's your experience with Him, and you have a confidence about His love for you, 
You are empowered to love others. What a remarkable thing to so come out of all the insecurities and all the inferiorities and all the fears that we have about how people will react to us or reject us or abandon us and so and be able to love because we are loved. And we've grown confident in that. To be forgiven. Man, I'm a screw up. And that he would forgive and not hold that against me. Give fresh start, clean slate, new mercies and grace every morning. Friends, that empowers us to forgive other people. Some people have done horrible things to you. Things God would never want them to do to you. And you're like, I don't know how I could ever forgive that individual. You can when you are a forgiven person. And the other, the last fruit that I'll mention, and we could talk about a lot of them, but I'll just mention one more, and that's peace. See, we, we have this notion in this world that peace is about the absence of turmoil. Peace is about the stillness of the waters and, and the dissipation of all the rain and the winds and things like that. No, peace is a state of well-being in the eye of a hurricane. That's peace. This world is broken and it's going to be broken until Jesus returns. He's doing restorative things now all the time. We get to partner with Him and cooperate with Him in doing restorative things all the time. But it won't be ultimately restored until He returns. It's going to continue to be chaotic. It's going to continue to be fallen. It's going to continue to be filled with all kinds of heartache. But those who have hoped, who are confident in God's goodness, in God's covenant love, in God's power, in God's purposes... It is well with your soul. So, what do you do with all that? We continue to put evidence out before you every week. Scripture, testimony, stories, uh, the best thinking of people in this world and so on about who God is, how God has pursued us, what God's activity is around us. Are you considering all that evidence? Are you weighing all that evidence? Are you drawing any kind of conclusion about that? Would you come to believe? That is to say, bet your life on Jesus. Listen, our hope, our confidence is in the fact that God thought it not too much. To incarnate himself, become a human being, enter this world, suffer a horrendous kind of substitutionary death that we should have had, but he took it on instead. Atone for our sins, resurrected and conquered death so we can live. Will you believe that? Bet your life on that. And will you cry out? In those hard times and hard places, cry out to Him. Cast your cares on Him. 
Quit running, quit hiding, quit busying yourself, quit medicating. Cry out. Will you find joy? First and foremost, in God. Find it. Get quiet. Lean in. Allow Him to lean toward you. Connect. Find it. Bow with me. Let me pray for you. So, Father, on a day like today, where you have been so gracious to meet with us as you have in these moments, I know that the work of your Spirit has been surfacing pain all around the room. Stuff is just burning in some of the hearts and minds of our friends here today. And Father, we need to cry out to You. We need to call upon You and to wait in Your presence. Would You hear our cry? Would You respond to us with grace and compassion? Would you, like with David, be our rock and our fortress? Friends, let's continue to think on these things for just another moment.